Welcome to the Feds. Insiders bringing accountability, integrity, and reform to a broken bureaucracy. At Feds for Freedom, we value constructive dissent and healthy debate. The views and opinions shared in today's episode are those of the speaker alone and do not express the views or opinions of the U.S. government or any other employer. Welcome to the Feds. Insiders bringing accountability, integrity, and reform to a broken bureaucracy. We are your co-hosts, Stephanie Weidel and Jim Erdman. Today, we're going to talk with Dr. Kathleen Ruddy, exploring what she has witnessed in our medical system and government over the past couple of years, how it impacts freedoms of all Americans, and what you can do about it. Dr. Kathleen Ruddy is a veteran cancer doctor who has spent a considerable amount of her career pursuing breast cancer prevention. She is a board member of Feds for Freedom. Welcome, Dr. Ruddy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Ruddy, could you give us a little background on yourself and your education? I'm a cancer surgeon. Uh, I trained at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I was in practice for about 15 years here in New Jersey uh, when I peeled off and went to McGill University and did the first international master's for health leadership. Uh, that launched me into the realm of international public health care policy making. Um, I received a grant from the WHO to do breast cancer screening in Uganda. I created the first breast service for the royal family of Kuwait and Kuwait City. Came back to the United States and got very involved in the research on the breast cancer virus. And then just continued to pedal, you know, flat out. Um, thinking that I was coming to the end of my surgical career, and I, I was, but then uh, I was invited to serve on the leadership council of the Harvard School of Public Health during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And again, I started working with some of my colleagues, real power hitting leaders, Joanne Liu, who was president of Medicine Sans Frontier, and Rosamond Lewis, who at the time was running smallpox for WHO, but now um, she got pulled for COVID and now she got pulled for monkeypox. Um, so at the time when I thought, okay, this is it, I'm winding down, COVID broke out. And I was like, oh, good grief. <laughs> okay. So I started taking care of my patients with COVID and then I started taking care of patients with COVID. As I think I said to you in an email, when you asked me sort of to describe the last three years of my life, I would describe it as a final exam. This is like my final exam in the course, my life in medicine, my life on, on earth, really. So that's my background. May I ask real quick, you said that you were working on Ebola issues. Which year was that? Because there's been a couple- 2013, 2011-13, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah. I was I was in Liberia during the Ebola outbreak at the same time. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so you remember how, how difficult it was to get the WHO to even acknowledge that there was a problem. Yeah, yeah. I know it was it was interesting working inside the embassy at that point. Um, uh, working on the country team, talking about how they were dealing with it. And that's I think that's a separate conversation, but I, I didn't know that about you, Doc. So why did you go into the medical field? I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I did not expect to even like it. Um, I'll 
will spare you the Old Testament stories of my life. Let's just say there came a point in my young adulthood when I was working as a unit clerk, the night shift at Fairfax Hospital. And I was just looking for a job. I just needed a job. Um, I had just gotten my high school diploma. I thought I was done. This was good. And they assigned me to the ICU, working the night shift. And I walked into the ICU. I was supposed to answer the phone and fill out orders. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? This is really interesting. <laughs> and that, that was the beginning. So I went from being a unit clerk, and then I was a medical secretary. I had my own desk, and I was in the Department of Cardiology, or whatever, you know. And uh, I thought, oh, I'll go to college. I, I should go to college. Uh, I did not think that I would ever be a doctor. That was like remote. That was like having a summer home on the dark side of the moon. It's impossible. I did not want to be a nurse. I didn't want to be a tech. You know. So I decided I would major in American studies. And then a couple of years later, I heard about the physician assistant program at GW. I was living and working in Washington, D.C. And I was like, what's a PA? So they explained what a PA was. And I was like, oh. I could actually be practicing medicine with physicians? Yeah, okay, let's give that a try. So long story short, I got into the PA program and I was like, this is the best in the whole world. Women were now being liberated and they were going to law school or a few going to medical school. Uh, I was very glad to be a PA. I thought if all I ever do for the rest of my life is be a PA, this is great. But there were one or two PAs who went on to medical school and I thought, well, <clears throat> they're not going to take me if I don't apply, so I'll apply. So I got into medical school. From Can University. I ask real quick? Yeah, well, I mentioned the PA. I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt. I like, I like okay. switching things up here. <laughs> yeah. But um, you mentioned the PA program and, you know, a lot of people don't know exactly what that is, but I always think of it as like, um, I use like a military analogy. You've got officers and you've got enlisted and then you got this weird little middle ground with the, the chief warrant officers, you know, and I, I always viewed them as this is going to sound jaded. Whenever there was something enlisted that was going on, they'd, they'd come to the enlisted and go, hey, sorry, guys, I got to go do officer things. And then when officer things were going on, they'd be like, hey, officers, I got some enlisted stuff to take care of. Is that a PA? What, what does a PA do? Well, the PAs actually can draw their lineage back to Vietnam. So there were not enough physicians uh, at the time. Uh, doctors were being <clears throat> drafted. So they went to work for the public health service so they could work in the Indian reservation so they wouldn't be drafted, and shot and killed. Um, <clears throat> but there weren't enough physicians. So on the fly, uh, the military, the army, created medics and really gave the medics a lot of training and responsibility. Okay, so big protests, end of the war, Nixon ends the war, blah, blah, blah. All the medics come back from Vietnam. And at that point, shortly after the big infusion of government money to expand Medicare and Medicaid, the building of hospitals, right? Somebody got the bright idea, well, why don't we take these medics and find a place for them, an interface, as you suggest, between the physicians who are practicing medicine 
and the nurses who were handcuffed, not able to practice medicine. In fact, not given the education enough to do that. But the medics were, you know, they could get an IV going, you know, they could get a trait going, they could do a lot of stuff, okay? And so they created, Duke was the first one to create a physician assistant program. And two years later, GW started, and two years into GW's program, others accepted. So, so for, we, were, we were there to expand the physician supply in a very limited way. We were never expected to like grow into real providers. So for a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of people interested in the medical field and we've got a, a lot of young members of Feds, Feds for Freedom too. Yeah. You know, would you, would you recommend the PA route as, as sort of a stepping stone if they, they wanted to get into uh, the medical field and do, you know, practice medicine? Or, but on a, on a practical level, get their hands dirty and actually be able to actually practice the medicine. I think it depends. It would be individual. For the person who wants to have more responsibility is willing to take more responsibility. A lot more responsibility. But does not want to interrupt family planning or already has children. And like, you know, I'm not doing five-year surgical residency. It's not happening. Okay. I'm not going to incur $300,000 worth of student loan debt. I can't do that. So PAs and nurse practitioners, that's a good way to become involved in the clinical practice of medicine without getting in over your head. Because if you go to medical school, you're going to get in over your head. That's the nature of the profession. You're always going to be swimming in water higher than your height. <laughs> okay, That's how you do it. <laughs> You can get really good in eight feet of water if you're five three, okay. But sooner or later you're going to go choop, and now you're into the Marianas Trench, okay. And you still have to figure out how to how to cope. So I think um, nurse practitioner PA is fine. Although I would say this: if you're aspirational and if what you really want to do is to go to medical school, but you think, "Oh, I won't be able to get in," I would say, "Call me, okay, and I'll tell you how to get in." If what you want to do is become a physician or a surgeon. It's only one additional year of education to become a doctor. Three years to be a PA, one to be a doctor plus training. So if you really want to be a physician or surgeon, go for that. Do not be dissuaded by, oh, it's really hard. Everything's hard. <laughs> Everything worth doing is hard. Everything's hard. What's easy? So what, what piqued your interest into specifically breast cancer? My mother had breast cancer. <clears throat> that was number one. My mother was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1975. That was a big shock. <laughs> I was like, whoa, oh my God. Um, I was just a mm, medical secretary at the time. Uh, but that left an impression. I, I was the firstborn daughter. I'm actually the fifth generation of firstborn daughters. And we now go to like seven generations of firstborn daughters. Anyway, so my mother had breast cancer. I was like, oh my God. Um, then I became a PA, then I went to medical school. Well, then I decided I was going to become a surgeon. So now I'm in the surgical program and I'm thinking, oh, I like pediatric surgery. I like trauma surgery, but I want to work with women. I want to work with women. I love working with them. I did an elective at Memorial Sloan Kettering on the breast service there. And I was like, I was born again. Okay. Baptize me. This is what I want to do. I want to be a breast cancer surgeon. Um, at that time, there were no formal training programs for breast cancer surgeons. You just did general surgery, and then you practiced breast because you were a woman, whatever. So when I was chief resident, I went back to Memorial Sloan Kettering, and I talked to uh, Pat Morgan, who has just been appointed chief of the breast service, and he remembered me from two years ago 
when I was like all gung ho about being at Memorial. Um, and he had just been named chief of the breast service. Um, and I said, you know, Pat, you have the most powerful position in all of breast cancer in the world. And you are at the finest breast cancer surgical institution in all the world. I think you should have your own fellow. All the, all the big guys there, the liver guy, the lung guy, the head guy, they all have their own fellows. I think you should have your own fellow. And I would like to be that fellow. <laughs> said, okay. You don't get it if you don't ask. You don't get it if said, you don't okay. ask. He said, okay. He called me the next day. I was in the OR. And Dr. Brady, there's a phone call for you. This Pat. He goes, yep, we love to have you. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so being unit clerk to the first fellow at Memorial Sloan Kettering, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And I was happy. I was just thrilled I was able to do that. And I loved it. It's perfect. I could be a surgeon. I could take care of women. And I did something that was meaningful for me going back many years. And that had to do with breast cancer. And, my mother. and when did you pivot into really looking at prevention? Well, oh man. So I was in Kuwait. Um, someone else survives, remember the royal family that can be had invited me uh, there. And the plan was to create a breast service there. We were having trouble doing it, but finally we did. Um, and, it, and I came back um, and I was at a cancer conference. A friend of mine, uh, Ken, who was a radiation oncologist, he said, while you were away, Kathleen, there was a, a meeting in New York and it was a summary of the San Antonio Breast Conference and you weren't there for that, so here's a summary. And he said, you know, there's a paper here about the breast cancer virus. I said, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> breast cancer virus? I said, show me that thing. So I looked at it and I was like, are you kidding me? A virus? I mean, I thought I was like an expert. <laughs> I was like, I never heard of that. So I ran back to uh, my office. I called Arlene Mangina, who's a medical librarian. I said, hey, Arlene, can you pull this article? And then I said, this can't be the first article this guy ever wrote, James Holland at Mount Sinai. Pull anything else that he ever wrote. And then I said, you know what, stop. Pull everything you can find about the breast cancer virus. Because I looked through my textbooks, my pathology books. I looked through everything. I'm like, there was nothing there. So it wasn't like I was sleeping during that lecture. Sorry, what year was that? That was 2007. 2007. So Arlene comes back about three hours later. She has 100 years of research on the breast cancer virus. I was like... What? 100 years of research in the period material on the breast cancer virus that is nowhere in the textbooks? What the hell is going on? So I said, I'll do this methodically. And I started with the first material, which is in late 1890s. And I followed the story until the breast cancer virus was discovered by John Bindner in 1936. And all throughout, and how it was torpedoed by Mary Lasker, Solomon Garb, and President Nixon, because they were gonna have a war on cancer and they were gonna cure cancer in five years and they did not need to know what caused cancer because they were gonna cure it. That's Can what I'm interested in what causes breast cancer. When I found out that it was a virus, I was like, let's prevent it. That's it, prevention. <laughs> so can I ask, yeah. you know, you've got a hundred years of breast cancer virus history yep. behind yep. you. Yeah. Has, has breast cancer, uh, the, the frequency of it, increased over the last 100 years? Like yes. a lot of other ailments? When 
my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. The risk of breast cancer was one in seven, mm -hmm. one in seven women. I'm sorry, one in 14. It's now one in seven. It was one in 14, it's now one in seven. So it's double. Do, do we know going back like a hundred years uh, or that data really wasn't? We don't have the data. We don't have the epidemiologic data for that. But if we just go back to my mother, one in 14. That's a huge difference. Huge. And now one in seven. Then you have to, we won't go into it because we're getting kind of off track here, but I'll just say. We are. There's a reasonable explanation, a scientific reasonable explanation, easy to understand. I wrote a book about it, it's in there. Um, and it explains what are the other factors in this equation. If you remove the virus from the equation, you don't get breast cancer. If you remove HPV from cervical cancer equation, you don't get cervical cancer. You can smoke, you can drink, you can have sex with a zillion people. If you don't have the virus, you're not gonna get cervical cancer. Hmm. It's true for tumor viruses, okay? But if the tumor virus is in the equation, the tumor virus is responsive to hormones, birth control pills, oral contraceptives, hormone replacement therapy, BPA, carcinogens in the water supply, all of that augments the activity of the virus and other things that happen intergenerationally so that you push the incidents up and up and up and up. So I, I won't get you too far off track because I know we're trying to keep, Stephanie's going to make sure we stay on track here. But, um, you know, the, the, um, the, another question I have and is, you know, I've seen other, other ailments that have had indications. Like, for example, I've heard that schizophrenia or something like that might be caused by viral infection at some point. Do you think, I'm just asking you to speculate, do you think there's a lot of other ailments that may have a viral contamination component to it? Sure, why not? Sure. Why not? So what do viruses do? Well, let's think about this. You get a virus into your computer. Let's say you get a really bad one like Stuxnet, okay? <laughs> or just somebody- I know, a few, I know a few bad viruses for computers. Okay. You get, you get a virus into the computer and you know the computer looks like it's coming along just fine the reactors are seem to be working just fine whatever and then boom things blow up okay and you don't know really why and a lot of times these days I and mean, they can basically hide that stuff so that it's very difficult to even to find and this is true with human viruses as well so all kinds of problems that um, computer viruses can cause same for regular biologic viruses, it's the same thing. Computer viruses and biologic viruses, it's the same concept. It's code. It's code that get, gets into other code and screws with it. In the um, case of the biologic virus, the biologic virus wants to do just one thing and that's replicate. This wants to replicate. And it'll kill you so it can replicate. However, it does. I think viruses and computers these days want to do something else, mess with switches, for instance, or whatever, the, blow up your bank account, you know, or allow somebody else to go in there and steal all your money, whatever. Biologic viruses just want to replicate. Um, and they are very clever in their ability to increase replication. And so this comes very, very relevant to COVID and the vaccines. So we have discovered about 20 years ago that there are certain genetic sequences in cancer cells that maintain what's called an open reading frame. What's 
an open reading frame. An open reading frame is an accelerator. You put your foot on the gas and the code keeps being read, okay? Normally, the body goes, okay, we're done with you. We don't need any more hair. We don't need any more brown eyes. Okay, we're done. Okay, we're good with that. No, the virus gets in there. The cancer gets in there, steps on the gas, maintains an open reading frame so that the viral messages, the code keeps getting replicated. There are certain cancer cell lines that have these genetic sequences that maintain an open reading frame and are very much associated with aggressive, highly malignant metastatic cancer. Well, those genetic sequences were added to the vaccine. South at MIT found them. She did the genome analysis of the You're vaccine. SARS-CoV-2, like, like, the vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. What, yeah, it's, it's unusual. You know, Charles Rixley. <laughs> sorry, I want to add on to that. There's, there's a fellow out there, uh, Charles Rixley. He's got a great Prometheus something or other. He's on Substack. Uh, he has kept track of about, I think there's about 40 studies on mm -hmm. vaccine studies that are out mm -hmm. there that show that some of the deleterious open reading frames and some of the yeah. deleterious parts of that spike protein, yeah. they've always in the past been removed from whatever vaccine product is being developed. But for some reason, for this vaccine product, they kept, say, like the HIV uh, inserts in. They kept the ORF-8 insert in there. So, you know, it, it's high, it, I'm scratching my head on why, if you've got what? history of studies that say, hey, you take these deleterious parts out. Stop, 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 stop. <laughs> no, the, reason is, the reason is, if you want to maximize the replication of spike protein, right? So you can kill the right. person and kill other people. Open reading frame. Open reading frame. Works every time. Well, you know, you want to maximize that in theory for to increase your immune response. But I think, you know, if you increase that too much, you're going to have a whole lot of... This has nothing to do with the immune response. <laughs> okay. Would you like to talk about how you saw uh, medicine politicized and weaponized uh, mm -hmm. Did you see it politicized and weaponized before COVID happened? No, I, I did not see that at all. What I saw was the transformation of the medical profession, both at the level of nursing, which was a revered profession. Revered. I mean, you respected nurses. They ran the show. The head nurse for the hospital was like the surgeon general I mean, she would take on the director of medicine and she would win okay you don't she's like mother superior you don't screw with the head of nursing so the nursing profession was revered and capable and trusted the medical profession of physicians and surgeons very much so when after this is my view when after 1965 uh and the introduction of medicare medicaid the expansion of government funding of healthcare, um, and very importantly, the war on cancer, which was like, we're going to throw a zillion dollars at this. Income of pharmaceutical companies, vice companies, people who are building hospitals, whatever. And it becomes a profit-driven business rather than a profession. And then all of a sudden, it becomes top-heavy with the, the money people and the regulatory people, blah, 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 blah. Um, that 
I could see with my own eyes. I was able to escape it somewhat. Um, there was a move to buy up practices and have practices be incorporated into the hospital model uh, to make physicians employees. Um, I was able to resist that because I was so valuable to the hospital system that I could say no and they would not want me to leave. When in the Obama administration, there was a crushing move to capture medical data and then the introduction of electronic medical records with computer systems and algorithms that were primitive and stupid. I was like, no, I'm not gonna do this. And at that time, the corruption of the medical system itself was so profit-driven that doctors were actually incentivized to do anything for a patient in order to make a small amount of money. There was, I think the, the last straw for me was when I had a patient who was scheduled for surgery and uh, I went down to the, the holding area, the pre-op area to see how she was doing, was everything fine, all the paperwork, you know. And I looked at her and I'm like, she looked desperately ill, it was flu season, it was like February. And I'm like, I looked at her, I said, you're sick, what are you doing here? She said, well, I don't know, you know. <laughs> she said, the nurses said I could stay, whatever, the anesthesiologist said I could stay, she had a fever. Um, at that time, it was pre-COVID, about two years before COVID. And I said, I called over the head nurse who I trusted a lot, Trish. I said, cancel the case. We can't take her to the operating room. Trish said to me, the anesthesiologist is going to get paid $400. What do we do, okay, for a case like this? He said, he's willing to do the case. I said, he's willing to take this woman. He's infectious. Obviously, she's got the flu or something. He's going to take her into room five, and he's going to contaminate that equipment and that room. So what, you can make $400? I said, no. I was thoroughly pissed. Cancel the case. I said to the patient, call me when you're feeling better. We'll reschedule the case, okay? Fine. I was so livid that this would happen that I called the medical director at the hospital on my way home. I was like, this time, you know, I had my car phone. And I was just, I went wild on him. I said, Frank Mazzarella was his name, okay? Yeah, Dr. Frank Mazzarella. I said, what the hell is going on that you and your staff would allow a patient who's that sick into an operating room to infect them, to infect the clinic, and to be sitting in the holding area for three hours, okay? And not call me and let me know what's going on so that I can cancel the case. Nothing happened, nothing happened. I was like, I'm out of here, goodbye. Have a nice life, go with God. So that's when I finally left. I said, okay, well, I'm gonna get out of the OR because it's time for me to leave anyway. When you're a surgeon, it's like when you're a pilot, you wanna leave before you have to, right? <laughs> leave while you're at the top of the game, you know? Um, but then I continued taking care of patients and doing consulting and so on and so forth. And I did that for about three years when COVID broke out. Can I ask, Doc, um, you mentioned that there was that period where they were gathering a ton of data just and they used these dumb algorithms. Now, we're fast forward from the Obama era to now. The health, health practice has incorporated a lot of AI. And I think a lot of that started. I mean, you have to gather those mass amounts of data. In, so is that is that where you think maybe this this push towards AI, healthcare AI started? And and I, I don't mean to get too off. Yeah. Sorry, Steph, I'm going to get a little off track here. I'm curious. This is great, Jim. Thank you. So, um, yeah. Why is that, Jim? 
I'm going to, I'm going to put it on you. Why you am I taking her off track? Cause I'm no, 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 just no, no, made no. that way. <laughs> you're, you're the spook guy. So you're all about data collection. Okay. So answer me the question. I'm going to put it back at you. If you're collecting gigabytes on everyone. Oh, it's way more than that. Way uh, more what, than every that. day, every day. Okay. How are you going to manage that data? Who's going to be sitting at the computer screen? <laughs> okay, doing the charting, or how are you going to manage all that data? AI to the rescue, right? You just throw the data into another data crunching machine. Hopefully, at the end of the day, input and output are somewhat reconcilable, which they're not. No, this is why we now have these algorithms that don't make sense. So yeah. I'm not. I'm not scared of AI. I am scared of the people who build the AI. And I think that the machine learning piece, there, there are, I'm not saying biases as in like person biases, there's biases in how those algorithms are put together that have sure. second and third order effects you're not going to see oh, yeah. till later. Oh yeah. Anyhow, I didn't mean to get off track, but I, I think now uh, health professionals now are not just dealing with, you know, uh, a multitude of other issues. Now they're dealing as well with, you know, these AI models, which may or may not be, I mean, they're powerful but they're only as powerful as the, the user who knows how to use use AI and ask the right questions. Right, well, there are limitations, but there are also um, opportunities for abuse. So I'll give you an example from yesterday. So I get a call, we'll, we'll fast forward to what this is all about in a minute, but I get a call from a woman whose mother um, basically passed out, gets taken to the emergency room She's kind of groggy. She can't really move her left side too much. So they do a CAT scan. It's got a tumor right in the middle of her head. I mean, the middle, the middle, middle of her head. All right. They test her for COVID. She doesn't have any symptoms of COVID. They test her for COVID. She tests positive. Now she has a diagnosis of COVID. Now they can give her remdesivir. Now they can get paid another $100,000 on that diagnosis. And when she dies, God forbid, she's going to die of COVID. Okay? So you find what you're looking for, particularly if you crook what you're looking for. So that so woman does not have COVID. She does not need remedy. Go ahead, here. Jim. No, and, I, you know, I, I've got this, like, two competing narratives that uh, I've, I've heard. I've heard that, you know, Doctors are incentivized to, you know, to claim that there's COVID cases or claim that there's a need for respirators. And, you know, I did some research on it. I, I think it's Becker's Health. And prior to COVID, there was a huge portion of like rural America whose hospitals were already operating in red. And so and a lot of them were going bankrupt. And so if I am a doctor in a rural part of the United States and I've got a choice between between, hey, listen, I'm going to give this guy this and we'll have more money for my hospital. I, I might make that choice. But the thing on the other side of it is, I'll, I'll give you an example. Oregon Health Sciences University, one of the best universities in the world, right? One of the best yeah. university hospitals in the world. I think yeah. it has like five of the, the top specialties out there. Don't, don't quote me, yeah. right? The, they, they went a billion dollars in debt during COVID. And I can't reconcile these two different narratives put the COVID out there so that you know you can get a little extra cash don't treat the other diseases so you go bankrupt I, 
something something has gone horribly wrong over the last two years. And I don't know, it's sort of an open-ended question. What do you think? I think that there has been a systematic squeeze by on small hospitals to bankrupt them by reducing fee schedules that are, cannot support either indigent populations um, or even the middle class can't support the reimbursement from Blue Cross Blue Shield, for instance. So you get the smaller hospitals that are cave and cave and cave and cave. And the big hospital, the big whale comes in so that now in New Jersey, you got Barnabas Health merged with Rutgers, gigantic, okay? They're like orcas, hack and sack. Basically, you have these two big orcas in the most densely populated state and country. Um, then what happens is they've maximized their ability to feed off the bottom fish for their stockholders. COVID comes in, and these guys in the executive suite are making plenty of money, but they've reduced the staff and the nurses. And, you know. Then COVID comes in, and they get the telephone call, vaccinate, you'll get paid. COVID diagnosis, you'll get paid. And that looks good. Yes. <laughs> oh, and if you don't, okay, you're going to sleep with the fishes because we're going to pull your federal funding, okay, for your residents and so on and so forth, okay. So then what happens is what perhaps was largely unexpected, but should have been expected. And that is people got really sick. They got so sick that they inundated the hospitals and then they continued to get sick with myocarditis and strokes and heart attacks and stillbirths and infertility and cancer. And now the hospitals are back to their crushing, constrictive, suffocating fee schedules. Now the hospitals are beginning to go bankrupt at the highest levels. And the federal government is fresh out of money. You know? Well, we can't just print. Compile doesn't know where to go <laughs> to print more money. And the hospitals are like inundated, inundated. And the insurance companies can't keep up. Yeah, so then we have our feds for medical freedom guy, okay, who goes to the emergency room. We manage to get him stable from his stage four prostate cancer. But he's been having strokes. He goes to the emergency room, and he's been having strokes for about a year and a half. Uh, and they, they work him up in the emergency room, and they do cats, and they go, this is not related to your cancer. And they send him home, and they do nothing. And he tells me this. I was like, you need to see a cardiologist, okay? What are they thinking in the emergency room? You don't have, this is not related to your prostate cancer, so there's nothing we can do. Get to a cardiologist. He gets to the cardiologist, cardiologist puts him on the blood thinner. Now he has no more problems with his stroking. He's got vaccine injury. Now his heart is starting to fail. Goes to the emergency room. So prostate cancer is under control. Stroking is under control. I don't know what we're gonna do about this guy's heart. Goes to emergency room because he his blood pressure is blah at work. So it's carted off to the emergency room, okay, at like 9.30 in the morning. And I get a text from him at like 7 o'clock in the evening. I'm like, what's going on? 
I talked to him, you know, what happened? What did they do? And blah, blah, blah. And they started an idea. I said, what else did they do? He said, in the 12 hours he's been there on a stretcher, he said, they gave me an armband. Okay. A guy whose blood pressure is like 60 over 40. They gave me an armband. You've pivoted to work a lot with the vaccine injured. Um, so what is your, what does your work look, look like right now? Well, I kind of have stayed in my lane somewhat. So my specialty is cancer and I have um, become something of an experienced person with regard to COVID and the use of ivermectin. And I discovered much to my surprise um, it was as much as a surprise as discovering the breast cancer virus, that there's 20 years of research on the potential efficacy of ivermectin in the treatment of cancer. Mm -hmm. And so um, there were no clinical studies here in the United States. There's only one clinical study I know of, and that's in Iran. And the Iranians probably published the best review article that I have read on ivermectin and treatment of cancer. But I can't imagine that the Iranian clinical study is going to get, you know, headline news. So um, I took it upon myself to actually launch a proper investigation of potential efficacy of ivermectin in the treatment of patients with cancer. So that's what I'm doing. Wow. So we haven't even gotten to what did you start seeing in um, 2020 um, or 2019 that kind of got you into this fight? Well, so in 2000, in December of 2019, uh, the end of December, there were these reports of, oh, you know, the outbreak of flu. Of course, I was all ready for it. You know? I was like, the big one's coming, you know. I mean, I'd read um, Lori Garrett's book, you know, Virus X. She's like, she ran, you know, the movie Contagion, and she's a council of formulation. So I knew all that. It's coming. You know, the big one's coming. And so when there was an outbreak in Wuhan, and then they shut down Hubei province, I was like, it's a big one. So for about two weeks, I was like, this is welcome to the dark zone. Never mind the hot zone. Welcome to the dark zone. And um, I was, you know, as terrified and concerned as anybody, probably more so because I could see it very early on. But then something funny happened. Um, I saw a big outbreak in Wuhan and Wubei. And that sort of looked like the spread of a respiratory virus. And then there was a big outbreak in Milan and Milan is a big sort of east west hub. So no surprise that, you know, the end of the world in Milan and then New York city. So I was front row. Okay. For this off Broadway show that governor Cuomo was running, you know, from the Javits center. Um, and it, demanding ventilators. And, oh, you know, it was terrible. Then the fourth largest outbreak was in Albany, Georgia. Now, where's Albany? Does anybody know where Albany is? Well, guess what? See, God works in mysterious ways because I know where Albany is because the year before I bought a home in Albany. It's my winter home. And Albany is like Andy of Mayberry. It's nowheresville, Southwest Florida. There's no interstate, there's no international airport, there's a Coors plant, there's a marine logistics base, there's nothing there. Why would the fourth largest outbreak of Ebola be in Albany, Georgia? And I was like, what? 
But then the real topper, I didn't understand what happened there, I think, until later. But I thought, and I was born and raised in the Washington, D.C. area. And I've got one whole wing of the family, which are all CIA. I got, you know, federal agents, FBI on one side. My brother-in-law was dean of the Kent School. I have an uncle who's still alive who helped form the CIA. I have all, all these people. So I know that whole intelligence military layout. It's very congested, international airports, traffic coming and going everywhere. There was no end of the world scenario in Washington, D.C. Why? Why was there an off-Broadway show to rival Shakespeare's Hamlet with everybody dead at the end of Act Three in New York? And there was trouble, but there was nothing at the end of the world in Langley, Fort Detrick, Fort Meade, Capitol Hill. By that time, I was diving into the literature because the woman who lives across from me works as a, an investigator for a drug firm. And she said very flippantly, she goes, oh, it was an, it came from a lab. What are you talking about? <laughs> I figure, you know, I only know about five or 10 things, really. That's it. Everything else I don't know. So I'm like totally naive. What lab are we talking about? Oh, yeah, they got these labs. They have these labs, you know, in China. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> BSO4 labs. I mean, like the ones from the hot zone at Fort Dietrich. Oh, yeah, all over the place. She said it came from a lab. So I was like, then I go into the literature. I was like, mother of God. They took this thing out of a fat. They plucked off the spike protein, like we were playing Mr. Potato Head here. They jigged that, they added HIV, they add this, that, and the other thing. They attach it to a coronavirus, so the coronavirus becomes the missile delivery system. The spike protein becomes the warhead. They pretend that this is spread person to person, and maybe it is to some extent, but they've aerosolized this thing. That's the only way you get it to Albany, Georgia and skip Washington, D.C., is if you aerosolize it. And there are papers showing it can be aerosolized in the peer review journal. And they did the same thing with monkeypox. They aerosolized monkeypox. They did gain of function on monkeypox. And that is the only way that you can explain why monkeypox, who that's not spread very easily in homosexuals, got into 60 countries in 60 days. There's only one way for that to happen, and that it's aerosolized and dispersed. So it looks like a respiratory virus, and it can be spread person to person if you're shedding it and so on and so forth, but it doesn't go from Milan to Albany, Georgia. So then now I'm down in Albany, Georgia the following winter, and I'm at my exercise class. You know, I'm making friends with everybody. Woman, her husband's been vaccinated. He's sick. I said, oh, I'll go to the house. I'll see what I can do for him. So I'm talking with him. How did you get to Albany? Well, he is a nuclear physicist from Caltech. Sorry, say that again? A what? Yeah, yeah. Her husband, okay, is a nuclear physicist. Oh, nuclear physicist. Okay. From Caltech, who was recruited to the marine logistics base in Albany, Georgia. I was like, oh, yeah? You don't have to tell me anything else, okay? <laughs> you have said enough. I don't know what the hell is going on in Albany, Georgia, but it involves nuclear physicists from Caltech. How do you think they are aerosolizing this? Oh, they put it in the equivalent of a spray can and thrown it in. Yeah, and thrown it in. So if I were running a monkeypox operation, 
I would look in the literature and say, this is how you aerosolize it. Get the guys on the phone who know about the drones and drone it into the gay bars. Drone it into a gay party in Spain. Those guys are collecting for the, the Spanish party. And they'll go back to London and they'll spread it. HIV is sexually transmitted virus that's not highly transmissible, primarily in gay men. In 1980, 81, there was an outbreak in San Francisco and an outbreak in New York. So those guys know each other. It took two years for HIV in homosexual men to get into four countries. Two years, four countries. Monkeypox was going a uh, country a uh, day. So then I look, because I they're publishing that. See, this is the plus minus of all of the social media and everything, the internet, is that you can find stuff quick before they take it down. So I knew that they would be publishing the genes, genetic sequence, the genome analysis of this new monkeypox, a direct descendant of the outbreak of monkeypox in Nigeria, okay, in 2018, direct descendant. Scientific papers that you can aerosolize that. How many BSL-3 labs does the United States have in Nigeria? 10. If you have an outbreak of X, Y, and Z in Nigeria, it goes to a BSL lab. There are 10 that we support there. So if you have an outbreak of monkeypox, the labs are filled. So then it gets, now we're headed into high octane speculation, but maybe not far from the truth. They pull it, aerosolize it, and they disperse it, but they didn't disperse it as fast as we were able to share the knowledge that it looked like it was aerosolized and there was an FDA-approved medication to treat it, nitrosoxamide. And then all of a sudden, about two weeks later, once that information broke, monkeypox disappeared. It's no longer a thing. I mean, so, it's a thing, but it's no longer a thing. So real quick, you know, two comments, only tangentially related, because I like drawing us off track here. But um, uh I remember that one of the stories from the Ebola outbreak that hit Liberia and Sierra Leone and um, I'm forgetting the other country, the third country there in that sort of triangle. Um, they had said that uh, some of the Nigerian UN uh, peacekeepers actually were eating bush meat in Liberia, and that's how it started. I always heard that story. I was like, I don't know. It doesn't sound. It doesn't sound. Doesn't sound reasonable to me. But the other comment I'll make is. You know, having served in West Africa, uh, they have a saying, you know, in West Africa, at the center of every West African problem is a Nigerian. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but, uh, but uh, anyhow. Okay, so my sister, I was talking with her, her birthday was two days ago. So I always say, what are you reading, Barb? Um, she's reading a book called Spillover. I said, tell uh, yeah. about that. Okay, and Spillover is a story about how viruses can go from animals to humans. And I was like, well, isn't that convenient? Talk to my friend, Jim, who knows all about the CIA, okay, <laughs> controlling the narrative. As long as you can convince people that this was in pangolins, or it was a fish market, or it was, you know, in a bat, 
or, you know, Ebola was from, yeah, they won't even have as a thought, where the hell does this come from? When, in fact, I think retrospectively, hypothesis, hypothesis, that Ebola was engineered and released into West Africa so that they could test using ring vaccination, a vaccine. And they got 90% efficacy doing a ring vaccination study. And then that was the end of the Ebola outbreak. Draw attention, get everybody all hyped up, get them real scared because this looks awful, okay? Test your vaccine, pull it back. Now you've got your vaccine. So there was an announcement of an Ebola outbreak, God only knows where. And then the next day, this is just last week, the FDA has approved the Ebola vaccine. Uh, I thought that didn't work. I thought the last tranche didn't work. Do I have that wrong? Okay, this, okay now we're getting into real war planning here. <laughs> so <laughs> this is fun. Stephanie's over there. He's getting so far off track. No, no, no. But no, it's not far off track if they're going to threaten our friend Stephanie with hemorrhagic fever and get. Yeah, we don't want that. We do not okay. want right. that. Right, because if they can, if they can, you know, aerosolize monkeypox, they can aerosolize anything, including Ebola. So they could drop Ebola in St. Louis, Missouri, and scare everyone to death. That's it. So hold on. And again, it's my medical virology class is a bit dated, but I thought Ebola was a super like by it was a large virus and it's hardier than other viruses. Do I have that right or wrong? May I, I'll put it's, you on the spot here. Doc. No, no, it's big. It's the biggest thing known to man. I mean, it's a dinosaur. It's a dinosaur of virus. It's, yeah. You know, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so I thought it was pretty hard. I mean, you still had to have human to human like bodily fluids passed. To, to well, spread unless, it, right? unless you do gain a function. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, I'm not talking about the fiddling, whatever fiddling occurred, but, um, you know, you do in general, though, it's bodily fluids most of the time, right? It is true that it's not highly contagious unless you are in contact with someone who is now bleeding. And they bleed early. And they bleed and shed before it's clear that this is a devastating, this is not malaria, it looks like malaria, it looks like whatever in Africa. And then it's only about four days later, okay, and all of a sudden they vomit on you or they bleed out. And now it's teeming with viruses and it gets into the skin, it, it gets into the mucous membrane. So it's not respiratory, it's gonna be contact. Right. Um, but in those African countries, where close contact is what happens, and is particularly taking care of the people, burying the people. <clears throat> Big spread. Well, then, sorry, related point. What do you think about Dr. Cadlick's um, recent uh, statement? And I don't, I'm saying recent, it's, I think it's been at least a couple months that he's like, hey, listen, yeah, uh, Fauci was doing, Fauci was doing vaccine research when it comes to. Uh, the whole SARS-CoV-2. You bet. You bet. Okay, that, that answers it then. <laughs> you yeah, I, I, bet. Yeah. It, it seems yeah. reasonable to me because, I mean, yeah. the HIV vaccine research has been his baby for you know decades now. So it would seem reasonable, and especially when you take a look at what's on that spike protein in exactly the right positions to evoke an immune response, you've got the 
HIV inserts. Um, I don't know. He wanted to be the guy, I think, he wanted to be the guy to save the day like Sabin and Genesoft. Polio, soft vaccine. Nobel Prize, I'm your guy. Hero, okay. That's what he wanted. And um, I think he did everything possible uh, to both generate HIV, get it into a population that he could test. And now if you happen to, again, high octane speculation, but just throw it out there because everybody's making shit up as it is. So let's go, okay? Why not us? Why not us, okay? As I say to my, my family holiday dinners, you better tell us, answer our questions or we're going to make up answers for you, okay? So um, he wants to, to do something in the gay population having to do with hepatitis B. Hepatitis B was mostly exclusive to the gay population intravenous drug users. I mean, you could get hep B in other ways, but mostly, you know, if you were gay and having sex, you get hep B and, and hepatitis A. Uh, but I hadn't recognized that yet. It was non-A, non-B is what they called hepatitis C at the time. So hepatitis B. So now you're going to inject gay men in San Francisco and New York with the hepatitis B vaccine that contains HIV. Hmm. You get to kill a bunch of gay guys. And you get to play around with the retrovirus because hep hepatitis B, yeah, it's a tumor virus, but you get to really play with a hot potato, which is HIV. And, and I think Fauci wanted, wasn't so interested in who was going to discover it. Luke Montagnier discovered it and Bob Gallup stole it, stole the discovery, got away with getting the Nobel Prize, nevertheless. But I think Fauci wanted to be the little guy who basically was the action hero and was able to get a vaccine against HIV. But you know what? He took on more than he could chew. So he just made his way to the top with HIV, unscrutable, okay? No morals whatsoever. Doesn't care whether he kills anybody or not, because he's got some higher aim for himself that he views as his contribution to humanity. And the drug companies come in, they go, Fauci's our guy. <laughs> Fauci's our guy. You know, why did you seek out Feds for Med Freedom? or Feds for Freedom at this point. I got involved in pushback. Once I saw that and under appreciated that we were in the middle of bio-warfare, that we had been betrayed by our leadership in many ways. Um, I got involved, what do I do? I mean, I take care of my patients and this, that, and the other, but. Now I've got to become politically involved. I've got to do more. I've got to carry a bucket to the fire. And so I was introduced to a group of people. And one of them in that group was a, a, an ex-Marine who had served in Iraq, um, Jason Alameda. And he and I got to talking about this and the other, how could we work together? And he was the one who said, you know, you should take a look at this for medical freedom. So I did, I said, okay, I become a member. So I became a member, uh, but I was like a member of everything at that point, you know, what can I do? Um, and then later he said, you know, they're looking for a member of the board. So why don't you take a look at that? So I was like, okay. So I looked into it and I, I could see that what they were doing back against the vaccine mandates and all the rest of it, this was fantastic work, fantastic work. 
but I didn't see that they had a strong medical scientific wing to their offensive maneuver. And I thought, maybe I could make a contribution medically to their litigation to help inform both the leadership and the attorneys as well as uh, the members of the organization with regard to things like how to prepare for pandemics, how to treat COVID. Is that, you know? I'll say I was, I was very excited when we heard that Doc Ruddy was interested in being on the board. You know, I, I was uh, immediately interested in making sure that she, she had the opportunity to participate. We pulled in the car as we drove it off the lot, you know, the very beginning of this. And, um, you know, we started getting our pace. We started getting things organized. And we're at the point two years later where now we're starting to get teams that can effectively do things. And, you know, this feds for freedom, branding, restructuring, whatever you want to call it. You know, we've got enough people now who have the kind of know-how like Doc Ruddy. And we had a small team. You know, we had like a staff as a, you know, a PhD virologist from EPA. We had a, a couple of folks who do want to remain behind the scenes because um, of where they work, but they medical degrees and medical background, a bunch of handful of scientists, but it's nice now that we've got somebody on the board who serves sort of the focal point for that effort. So, I, you know, just honestly, I was excited when Doc Rudd showed up and, you know, and then I thought, you know, I have a chance to, you know, ask her all my nerd questions from you know, another life when I was involved in science. <laughs> How would you approach conversations with people who have made different medical choices without <clears throat> coming across as critical or um, making them feel like they're questioned for their medical choices. But we're entering a new, not a new season, a, a rehash of, of what we have gone through before. And we need, we need to turn people, we need to open their eyes. And, um, but how do you, how do you, converse with people who made the different choice? Well, they're one of three reasons for having decided to take the vaccine. One was that you were deceived. You were told it was effective. You were told that if you got the vaccine, you wouldn't get COVID. If you got the vaccine, you wouldn't give COVID to your elderly mother your mother with breast cancer, your children, your grandchildren. You were deceived and that it was safe. If you were pregnant, it, you were safe. If you were undergoing cancer treatment, it was safe. So you were deceived. You were coerced. You were breadwinner of a family. You worked for the federal government. I have uh, my cousin's husband uh, who retired from the DEA very senior position in the DEA, working for now military contractor. And he was afraid that he would not be able to continue to work as a military contractor. And he needed the work. Sole breadwinner, big overhead, okay? So you were coerced. Or you were scared to death. You were old, you had cancer, you were in the nursing home. 
you were feeble, you had heart disease, you don't know any better. You're the kind of person who, you know, takes an umbrella to the fourth of July, you know, when it's 90 degrees. You were terrified. You saw the news, you saw all of it. Oh my God, I'm gonna die. So those are the three three reasons that I think. Um so I'm very compassionate and understanding. I don't come out by saying you're an idiot, right? Um, that would be more my inclination now, okay? <laughs> that we have all this information, but then I can just say, I'm under strict orders to love everyone, okay? With a tender heart, okay? And so I'm gonna try to love these people who are obviously, don't have two neurons to rub together, trying to piece this out. Um, so I, I don't approach it from being judgmental. Um, I approach it by being compassionate and tolerant, trying to understand where they were coming from. Many of them, especially the ones that are coming to me now who were vaccinated have cancer, um, regret it. They're people who regret it. But again, they say, I had to do it. I wouldn't be able to see my grandchildren for Thanksgiving. My parents won't speak to me. Okay, whatever. I couldn't go to college. Drop out of medical school. Um, furthermore, it doesn't do anybody any good to begin to try and offer your help and support if you begin with some kind of judgment that they did things wrong. So just, it's like the guy who comes to you and he has lung cancer and he's been smoking and drinking for 40 years. Forget it. He's got lung cancer. Your job is to take care of him. So that's the right word. I think we have too many people we all love who made different choices to, to it's definitely not, you know, the, the benefit of being judgmental about that isn't going to help anybody. You know, so we, we all know somebody love that we wish had made, or we wish maybe we had helped them make a better choice or. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know. It's hard to be as alarmed as at least I was at the time and as passionate as I be, um, and not how at least insinuate that okay? <laughs> in expressing my opinion. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you know. What alternative approaches do you suggest that people seek out for their health at this point? So going into a season where the flu, RSV, and COVID vaccines are all being, they're not vaccines, shots are being pushed all at one time. So we're going to be seeing yeah. a lot of swirling of all of this. And uh, so what, what alternative approaches can you suggest for people to pursue? Doc, do you, do you recommend staying indoors without sunlight? exercise and maybe you know uh just Making you know happy. watching netflix every evening and drinking until you fall asleep some, some days i do <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um so fear not there are still the majority of the majority this is true the majority of people who are presently trapped like marshmallows in a jello mold inside the healthcare system. The majority of them are good people who want to help you. They're constrained. 
in many, many ways. So I think we can give up on trusting the leadership. I think we can abandon <clears throat> whatever the narratives are. You know, who was it? Was it Colby who said that we'll know that we have succeeded when everything the public believes is false? I don't know. Yeah, it was Colby. Was it? Yeah. We'll know that we have succeeded when everything the public believes is false. What he didn't understand is that not long after that, there's a tipping point in which nothing you say is believed. You lose all credibility, and when you lose credibility, you lose control. You lose your grip on the steering wheel, and that's where we are now. So to answer your question, what would I say broadly? If you have to stay in mainstream healthcare, most people do, if you're insurance, whatever, you're not gonna get your cardiac bypass, you know, at your holistic center from your naturopath, okay? Find people that you can trust and keep looking until you can find people in a situation that you can trust. Use your judgment in finding alternatives. So there are alternatives, both within the system. So you have the frontline critical care doctors. They have a huge list of physicians. I mean, you can go on YouTube. You can just ask around. Who are the doctors who are well-trained, well-credentialed, experienced, have an open mind, and are willing to approach the present medical challenges by combining the orthodox experience, which is not nothing, right? It's a lot, critical thinking, to those options which had been taken off the table, but that really do exist, like ivermectin, the bendazole, metformin, doxycycline, lactoferrin, IV uh, infusions of vitamin C, all that stuff. Perfectly legitimate, FDA approved, all that stuff can be brought to bear in the treatment alternative treatment of patients with cancer, in addition to the regular orthodox treatments. Find people who can do both. Now, big picture, and this is really important, and this is what I think FEDS is about, in my view. But we have to understand, um, you know, Neil Howe talks about the fourth turning, okay? This is more than the fourth turning. This is the fall of Athens, the fall of Rome, and the fall of the United States. This is not the fall of the British Empire. The British Empire was not built on liberty and justice rule. It was not. It was a feudal system. I think I think we're busy burning the Alexandria Library too, somewhere in there. That's it. That's that's all, you know, the heathens and the barbarians. This is not I was thinking about this at, this morning at Mass. I go to uh, Latin Mass on Sunday morning at a, a convent of Carmelite nuns, <laughs> our house prayer. Um, and I was thinking about how I had sent Stephanie this memo that I felt like this is a final exam of my life. And I'm like, who cares about me? Who the hell cares about me? This is a final exam for the country. The Civil War was the midterm. Are we going to hang together as a union at a cost of great bloodshed? Yes. Okay, never mind slavery and all the rest of it. That was Lincoln's premise. We're going to stay together as a family. We're not breaking up 
the family, not breaking a sec. Okay. This is the final exam. Are we going to persevere as a constitutional democracy, rule of law, liberty, and justice for all? Are we going to do that or not? It's going to be up to a few of us to see it through. Always a few. It's always 300. It's always SEAL Team 6. It's never everybody. So don't even bother complaining that the majority of people are sitting at home with a remote doing Netflix. Forget it. It's always going to be a few of us. But what's at stake here is a final exam for this country. This country is going down. Who's taking it down? China. What threatens China, which is the Communist Party of China and Xi Jinping, is liberty and justice and the superiority of the American mindset that we have transported around the world along with a lot of stuff that's not been very good. But what has been good is liberty and justice for all. And that is the threat. And China is not going to be able to become the superpower that it conceives itself to be if there's liberty and justice for all in the United States. It can't do that. So it has to figure out a slow way to destroy the country. So it has instituted, in my view, a cultural revolution in this country, transgenderism, killing the unborn, this bioweaponry, who knows who released it, rumor is it was China, I wouldn't put it past Fauci, whatever, everybody's at this. Now you ruin this country, you open up the southern border, you pay Mexico to let everybody in, you destroy this country. Now, the good news is that our founding fathers and our covenant with God have given us a peaceful battlefield upon which to wage war. That's the courts. And we're winning in the courts. We can take down China. We need, as a group, as a country, need to identify the enemy, not just a boogeyman. It's China. China cannot persevere and maintain its ambition as a world power if the United States is the place for liberty and justice. This is the final exam for liberty and justice, and that's what Benz is doing. And I will do what I can to explain the medical part of this. <laughs> and how, in your opinion, can the average American citizen encourage justice, encourage um, liberty in this culture? Yeah, okay, so this is gonna sound self-serving, but it's not, it's practical. Feds is the largest self-organizing group of patriots. Reform from the inside out. This 9,000 federal employees who are now committed to liberty and justice. So we've got Naomi Wolf and Peter McCullough and Pierre Franey. We've got you know, New Jersey stands up. Everybody, I'm like, if you're looking for a place to power up the coalition, and it would just be a coalition, it would be like the United Nations, only it's like the United Organization for Liberty and Justice, then get in touch with us and become a member. And we will do what we can. It, Jim did a brilliant, like Common Sense 2.0 Substack article yesterday. It's brilliant. You want to know from the inside? 
the brilliance and the, and the ability, the capability of some of these people like Jim, you just read that, okay? That's like Thomas Paine's common sense. It just explains to you very specifically how this is happening on the inside. What people need to understand across the country, the federal government and federal employees are a standing army that is being utilized by the state as a standing army. What has happened is that the employees, the federal employees are like, wait a second, <laughs> wait a second, okay? You're doing it to us? We work for the federal government. The federal government is now coming after me? Yeah, it's the state. The state consolidates power at the expense of the individual. The state view, Biden, all these guys at the top, and, and uh, the corporate creeps, you know, Bezos and Gates, they view the federal workforce as their standing army. Do this, do that, do the other thing. And at the top, they're able to do it, but it doesn't filter down very far. Everyone in the country needs to understand that it's now, as it was in the beginning, is now and it shall be, okay? It's going to be the individual liberty and justice versus the state whose job is to consolidate power at the expense of liberty and justice for individuals. We're done, okay, final exam. We have to, we're being destroyed from the inside, and I'm paraphrasing here. And that's the best way to take a nation down is to destroy that, that, moral, that moral infrastructure or deal or the values that built the country. And just on a personal perspective, you know, everybody's job in the federal government is to sell America. So, and it doesn't matter if you're forward facing or inward facing. Like I can talk from yeah. current experience, my yeah. job or Marcus's job as a department of state officer. Right. You go out and you, you meet with people and you say, hey guys, yeah. do you want to be part of the, you know, the greatest team in history? We're America, we can do great things in, you can be part of the greatest experiments in freedom ever devised by good men and women. And I think you've hit it, Doc, on, on the head where if you take away our ability to sell the one single point that makes us unique and special, well, then we've lost. We've yeah. lost. Yeah. Yeah, then we're just another Balkan state. But we're not. We're not. We're liberty we're and not, justice. We are. We are. We have a rule of law, and we're going to, from the inside out, that's the reform. The transparency, which is what Jim did in his Substack article, this is what we see, and this is a fact. These are facts. The accountability is how you get reform. So Fauci goes to prison for felony murder. Pfizer goes to prison for felony murder. Okay? The guys. The company gets sued, but the guys go to prison for felony murder. Okay? And don't forget anti-Sherman, anti-Sherman antitrust uh, violations. Well, Grow the book. There's room for that. <laughs> As it says in, in the book of Judges, let the courts convene and let the books be open. Old Testament. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Betty, for coming on with us and speaking with us. We'd love yeah. to have you back another time. This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, science, you. science, next one. Let's get Steph here, oh, the okay. other Steph, not you, Steph. Yes. And maybe yeah. a couple of the other 
Oh, I'd love to. 79. Oh, yeah. Two steps in a rut. Okay. <laughs> I still need an episode that discusses the fundamental, the fundamental issue that has been at play here. People don't get that your immune system works. We, we still need an episode, Doc Ruddy, on here's your immune system. Here's why it works. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this is what. The Department of Defense. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in. Up next week, we interview Holly Felmley, a former financial analyst for the Department of Defense Education Activities, DODEA, who worked in Japan and Belgium starting in 2019. Holly details what she saw in Japan at the height of COVID, and then in Belgium when she moved there in late 2020. She recounts the blatant discrimination she experienced for being an unjabbed federal employee, culminating in her being unwillingly placed on AWOL status. She was fired, rehired, and fired again within a four-day period. This is an episode you don't want to miss. Please like, comment, subscribe to, and share this episode. Please consider donating to Feds for Freedom at fedsforfreedom.org. And as always, stand up and hold on to your liberty. In a letter to James Madison in 1788, George Washington wrote, Liberty, when it begins to take root, is a plant of rapid growth. Your standing firm for your liberty is that root that leads to a rapid growth. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week.